We're here to ignite your fire by highlighting the success and innovation of other movement professionals. This is the PT on Fire podcast. PT on Fire Nation, we uh, are super pumped to bring you Adam Wolf and Nick Studholm. And we got to have a moment of vulnerability here. We've been sitting struggling for about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes trying to get this crap going. This is our third try, third try the charm. These guys are being very nice, sticking with us. So we are very appreciative of that. Uh, so just to start off here, Adam is a PT, massage therapist, and fellow of Applied Functional Science, owner of Real PT in Chicago. And he just released an, uh, a brand new book called Real Movement that we will dive into deep today uh, in our podcast. And, and Nick's uh, chiropractor as a doctor in chiropractic medicine. He's a fellow of Applied Functional Science. Uh, he also is a co-founder of an app and uh, movement system called Spark Motion that we use at uh, the clinic I work at, Superior Physical Therapy. We use it to give home exercises to patients. It's a great app. And Nick, I would love to have a conversation with you about that, maybe even on another episode, because we absolutely love love the app. Uh, so, gentlemen, both you guys, we, we are honored to have you on and uh, be chatting with you today. It's our pleasure to be here. Thank you. It makes sense that it's uh, three for mind, body, spirit, and seven for frontal and transverse. So this is going to be the winner here, I can tell. I like it. I like it. <laughs> and if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? So, you know, we got to have some struggles to make it worth our while. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks for having us. It's fun to be here. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So, Adam, I want to I want to dive into the book, uh, Real Movement. I know uh, just kind of starting to read it, I, I can appreciate the eclectic approach that both of you gentlemen have. I, I can tell you both crave learning and, and acknowledge that learning is a is something that we never arrive at. It's a continuous process. And that's why we wanted to have you guys on today. Um, and so, Adam, if you could just start off by by letting us know kind of what led you to the point where you wanted to to be an author of a book and what was the driver for you to get that information kind of, as you say, a, a mental kaleidoscope of everything you've learned and you piece it together in a book. What was your driver for that? Uh, good question. I, well, you know, I've, I've been teaching a number of courses for a number of years and sort of what I've realized uh, as I teach and a couple things. One, what is considered common knowledge a lot of times really isn't common knowledge. So so that combined with people saying to me at the end of classes, where can I find more information on that? Where can I find more information on this? And just the various pieces. And my response was always, well, there is, you know, you got to go to a bunch of places. And so sort of the, the driver of the book was, it really started as a, a, a supplement to the courses that I teach, but I'm fortunate that I've studied with and learned from some really smart people and a couple, a few of them have given me permission to talk about their work and sort of how I bring it together a little bit. So that was sort of the driver of the book. It was a few years ago. It took me a, a while. It was one of those things where I would wake up, you know, like 4.30 to 6 in the morning, a lot of mornings before my kids would get up and I'd have to start my day. So that's sort of how the book came came to be. That's awesome. And, and you know, definitely can appreciate that. So you're, uh, you find that you have some creativity in the morning then. That's when you gotta you get up, get after it before the day starts and, and get rolling with it. By far, I feel like I have the most energy in the mornings. I've always been an early riser, but I feel like there's a crispness and freshness to the day a lot of times when I can get out and do things before other people are out there. Uh, and I sort of joke with my patients, you know, when I have a busy day and I've treated all day and I'll 
you know, so starting in the morning and worked all through the afternoon is that I feel bad for my patients at four and five o'clock. Of course, they're going to get everything I have, but I'm not as sharp as I am for that seven a.m. patient. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's where uh, that's where the good old coffee comes into play for me. <laughs> but that just keeps me up at night then. So yeah. Yeah, that's why. I'm... Right. Double edged sword. <laughs> um, so kind of diving into the book, uh, I, I like right off the top that you take this well-rounded approach. Um, you acknowledge the different backgrounds that you've had. Uh, the different experiences that you've had, and you even reference uh, your conversations with Nick um, about you know you you coming from uh, the applied functional science mindset and almost the fact that manual muscle testing, if we're going to dive into it, is you almost you were thinking not so much relevance with clinical practice, whereas Nick was offered able to offer a different perspective, and you guys kind of sound like you hatched out you know a lot of conversations and and. Uh, you know, just passionate people talking about movement. So, you know, both you guys, give us a little uh, rundown on how the conversation went merging kind of the functional world, which both you guys come from, but also kind of the neurological and kind of breaking down the isolated muscle testing. Well, I think we, we certainly came to it in different ways. Uh, I'll let Nick answer that first. Who are you going to? We try to, when possible, hang out as much as possible or talk as much as possible. So these things happen somewhat organically, but... I think the, the, I came about it from a manual muscle testing background before I was introduced to AFS. And at that point, I, again, I know a lot of people view the two as being distinctly different, but they actually complement each other quite well. The issue with manual muscle testing, I think, and this is where Adam and I get along well, is just thinking about the science or lack thereof, is having a reproducible test. And so I spent two years working with a doc by the name of Craig Bueller, and he had some a, a machine called a FET system, which measured force over time. And Adam has one now. What they allow you to do is see if you can create a reproducible test. And so we have thousands of recordings to show that a muscle typically breaks at about 25 to 30 pounds of force with about a half second rate of rise. And either you can sustain it or you can't. The way it would work for me is we might test a muscle like the peroneus longus and, and find that it, it test quotes inhibited where it can't sustain that, that force, which is less than what it should be able to sustain from a strength standpoint. We think about, from an AFS perspective, that the peroneus longus, one of its functions would be to keep the first rate down while the real, rear foot's inverting. What was pretty cool is you would find the muscles inhibited, and then you would drive that motion, uh, either using uh, you know the true stretch or some, some uh, hands-on FMR, what, what you like to create a relative midfoot eversion and rear foot inversion with ankle dorsiflexion and you'd go back and retest and find that the muscle would facilitate so wow. sort of just create a journey of thinking through that the table and, and and function aren't necessarily different if we look for ways in which we can encourage a, a lasting change i came to it a little differently I, I learned movement first as i talk about in the book uh, my, my father's a gift fellow as well and so you know i, I learned I learned movement this way before I even went to PT school or decided when I decided to go back to school, my father handed me 85 videos from Gary and those guys, the functional video digest. And so I dove right into that and then getting into PT school, uh, it, it kind of got me in trouble a little bit actually, because you know I was that kid in class that would raise their hand in orthopedics or biomechanics class and say, well, what about this? And the, and the teacher would say, I never really thought about it that way before. So I had to like turn it off almost and uh, through school, once I got done with school, I hit it hard and, uh, you know, the movement piece of it. But what I started realizing and the question that I started asking myself was, is the work I'm doing working or not? 
and how do I really know? I felt like my movement skills were really pretty sound and I feel like my body working skills with the massage background and a lot of the soft tissue classes I take or have taken pretty sound, but I never knew if the work I was doing was working or not. And then, you know, Nick and I are uh, fortunate to have him as a friend and mentor and he sort of introduced me to the muscle testing concept. And so for me, it's really become an insight into if the work I'm doing is working or not. I can test different regions and, you know, on a side note, I would really, I had my, I had a hard time with muscle testing in the beginning because I couldn't get my head around why I would test uh, individual muscle in isolation if my whole philosophy was that I don't believe that muscles exist in the body and that it's a, a man-made construct. So I, I worked that out for myself by just, I, you know, I rationalize it by saying, well, what I'm really doing is testing a region of the brain's ability to connect with a specific region of tissue that we might call the deltoid or the bicep or whatever. And so with that in mind, I started learning more, more muscle testing. And that's how I've sort of uh, have reconciled the two of them. And just like Nick said, I mean, should he's my teacher. Sure, I'm probably not supposed to swear there, but he's a teacher of mine. And, uh, you know, that whole thought process of finding what is delayed in the timing or inhibited and being able to, from an AFS perspective, drive motion into all that tissue that's inhibited in all three planes, and then you can see what's what changes. So it's been a really powerful combination for me. And quite frankly, it just allows me a little bit more insight into if the work I'm doing is working or not and where that threshold lies, right? If AFS is always about working at the individual thresholds. And so for me, like understanding how well, how much I can drive, how much force or load I can drive into a specific tissue or body part and then be able to recheck that that tissue or muscle by a muscle test to see if it's still firing the way that I want it to, that's, that's pretty good insight for me. I love it. I love it. And I like what both you guys are saying is, is the, import, the importance of the test and then the exercise and then the retest. Because how, you know, how else are we going to know, like you said, if what we're doing is, is making a difference? And I think um, as, a, you know, as a newer PT, and I think newer PTs, newer graduates, or movement experts, I think we all struggle with the confidence. Are we actually making a difference in somebody's life, you know, with the strategies that we're using? And, uh, and I like what you guys just said, I love how you merge together kind of the traditional mindset with the movement world and they kind of mesh very nicely in, in a way that allows you to test and then perform the exercise and then go back and retest and see a, a difference. And that's very powerful. Yeah, I agree. I think it really is a good concept. And, you know, I, 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 hate, I hate that practice is about this, uh, but unfortunately, we are on sort of selling ourselves to people and, and trying to get them to buy into something we know will help them in the future. And it's not always easy to see a change. And, and so whether you are a fan of muscle testing or not, sometimes just the short-term sensation change of patient experiences is enough to get them to accept that this is a path they're willing to, to go down. Right. And so on some levels, it is practice management, and I don't do it for that reason, but you do need some short-term objective markers sure. to be able to uh, help patients sort of see that there's a long-term goal. Sure. So to clarify, I'm a little slow here. I'm going back to what you guys were talking about, comparing a manual muscle test on a table, offloaded, no weight-bearing, to, you know, to a functional movement that we know – you know, that would activate, let's, and you use the example of the chronius longus. Kind of explain to me, maybe again, what were your findings? You found well, that. Well, first off, I guess we could say a couple of things. One, you don't have to test a muscle laying down 
in a neutral position. I can test pretty much most muscles or most regions from a standing or a quote unquote functional position. Right. So, so that being said, I would say, Nick, throw in here whenever you want, but I would say that, you know, from my understanding, if you look at a muscle on an EMG and you look at the rate of firing and how the muscle builds up the contraction and has the contraction and has the ramp down of the contraction, there would be a really nice smooth ramp up, a pretty steady state at the top and a smooth ramp down. If you look at an inhibited muscle, there's going to be a, a, a short, sharp ramp up, a very spiky contraction and sort of just falls off at the end and there's no real ability to engage. So when we say inhibited, I think in my head at least what I'm saying is delayed timing of the nervous system to engage that particular muscle. I'm not saying that the muscle doesn't work. Okay. okay I'm saying that there's a delayed timing in the muscle to, to be able to work. And so in my head, most people that are coming to us are in pain. Right. And there's all sorts of studies and research that shows that pain produces inhibitions. And so getting at it from that perspective, if there's an inhibition, some, that means that something is inhibiting it. And so then it becomes being able to sort of find, because you think about reciprocal inhibitions and these things that we've learned in school, this is to me the direct application of it. And so, uh, Nick, I don't know if you have anything else to say there. Well, I would say from a, to, to, to somewhat answer the question is the finding is that generally you'll see that a, a, if you find again, for the term of the discussion and inhibited glutamax, that um, if you think about from an AFS perspective that the glutamax does uh, lengthen in flexion, adduction, and internal rotation, that you, you generally can find that you can change, a sh you can create a short-term change in the timing of the muscle by creating a load that mimics that. So if, mm. if we find that it doesn't change, then the neat part is you start to hunt down your, your path and say, well, gee, if that didn't create the difference, maybe it's that the rear foot lacks eversion. And so if I drive an eversion moment at the rear foot, does it facilitate the glute? And so you can somewhat use some of your AFS movement patterns to determine what might be the homework you send them with relative to the change in the muscle function. Mm. And you're measuring that muscle function with EMG activity, basically. No, I'm measuring it with a manual muscle test. Oh, okay. So I, that sort of goes back to the idea of my issue with manual muscle testing is no, very few people are ever exposed to the FET system, which allows you to ultimately have a feedback tool to learn how to be an objective tester. Yeah, I got you. And so most people do manipulate the test. Now, that said, I want to be clear that I have a, you know, 3D biomechanics. Um, uh, they're called inertial movement sensors. You put them on a body. I have a 3D plantar pressure treadmill. So I, I check, and I have four EMGs, so I do check that stuff as well. So it's not, it's not just saying it's a muscle test. And what I would say is what's interesting is what our eyes see and what, what the 3D sensors tell me is don't always correlate. So it's interesting to sort of check and see what you find. So that doesn't directly answer your question, but from a manual muscle test, the, the, the point is it's one, one data point, right? Right. In, sure. in, a, in many. Kind of what you were talking about with the neurological system and how we can impact that, it, it kind of took me to a passage in your book, and it, I'll quote that this portion here. It says, my clinical experiment experiments have, has led me to believe that more often we affect the software or nervous system rather than the hardware or actual structure of the body while working with the clients. Although there are many instances where the structure is a driver of dysfunction. And I really like that because what we're talking about 
when we talk about providing a load to a muscle that's authentic to its function and then return to a muscle test, we aren't providing, we aren't facilitating a strength gain in that muscle. We're going after neurological changes, the software, as you say, kind of the proprioception and, and uh, the ability of that muscle to fire. And, and talk, talk a little more about um, your thoughts on that, how we impact the software system rather than the hardware. Yeah, sure. Well, I think that for me, if you look at what the research shows about soft tissue and how much pressure it takes to deform fascia or soft tissue, I think I believe the number is 2,000 pounds of force per square inch to be able to deform fascia or tissue, soft tissue. So we think about that. I kind of joke, I have mallet hands. I really do. Like I have a heavy grip. I, using that FET system, like I can maybe get 65 or 70 pounds of pressure squeezing as hard as I can. So I think that we're not really changing the composition of the tissue as much as we think we are. We're not getting rid of the quote-unquote adhesions. I believe that what we're doing, and again, from my interpretation of some of the research that's out there, is we're improving the ability of the interfaces of the various layers of tissue to slide past each other. So to get the deep to superficial to slide past and, and all those kind of pieces to, to be able to move. So I think from a soft tissue perspective, that whenever we're putting our hands on somebody, we're creating pressure differences. So we're, we're, we're changing the soft tissue. And, and so I, I think that that's the number one thing that comes to my head is with that question. The second thing is, and again, I believe I say to my book, and it's a quote straight from Nick, is we open up neurological windows. I really think that way to be able to make changes in their motor center, I guess, uh, to be able to improve the outcome, right? If there's, we're really trying to, Nick and I were just talking about this last night, like improve the afferent input up or change the afferent input up because if there's pain, there's going to be, as I love to say, an aberrant afferent. And we can change the, if we can change the afferent input up, we can change the output. I think that's really the goal in all of it. So when we're touching people and they get up and they feel looser and those type of things, I think some of that is just from the pressure change in the tissue and getting blood and getting oxygen in the tissue. I think some of it is just from us having our hands on somebody and the, all of the benefits that go along with that, including like increasing proprioceptive awareness. But I think really what we're doing is changing the input up into the brain to ultimately change the, the output or how we move. And so uh, you know, I heard, I, I've heard a couple, Dr. Andrea Ospina is the inventor of functional range conditioning, and I heard him say, you know, there's a, a bunch of ways to hack the system, but what do you do with, what you do with it when you have it is the key. You know, so what, what do you do with it is, is sort of my question. And I think that that's where understanding how the nervous system is responding to a muscle, can it engage it or not, really is, is a benefit uh, because we can, again, have that insight and, and, you know, start to drive motion in the tissue, start to lengthen. I think about uh, length tension relationships in the body and one tissue, you know, one side's short and the other side's long. Well, there's going to be more connection to the nervous system most times with the shorter tissue and less connection with the nervous system most times with the longer tissue. So you can start to think about it in those perspectives in terms of just balancing it out and, and, in order to affect proprioception ultimately, in order to affect like our awareness and how we move in space. Hope that answers your question. Oh yeah, absolutely. Go in there, man. I don't even. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that was great. And uh, you know, that just, Andrew and I have talked about this and as a clinic we talk about how complex the neuromusculoskeletal system is. It's, it's insane how complex it is and uh you you know that's what i like about your book is you do a great job at trying to tie every all these pieces together and and make it a little more 
um, you know, understandable. But if you don't mind, I'd like to jump into chapter four. You talk about motor control theories. And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. And I know Andrew has too. Uh, kind of, you know, how we can talk about kind of the nerdy side of it, the theories, the motor control, kind of get deep with it. And then let's take it more back to a clinical kind of over overview of what should we expect to accomplish in, in a four to six week plan of care with PT. So let's talk, kind of dive into the nerdy stuff and then how that transfers over to clinical kind of performance. Sure. Anything specifically that you wanted to touch on? You know, I think we, we've spent a lot of time here talking about, you know, the realistic, like, like how long does this stuff take? I mean, when we have people here, why, why, why and when did we start telling people that they're going to be here for four weeks and then, you know, that's it. I mean, we know I've been working on movement dysfunctions in my body for the last three years. And, and, you know, I just, it's amazing to me how, you know, how sometimes how slow the progress is. And, you know, when you're looking at the neuromusculoskeletal system, I think it's unreasonable for us to tell people that they're going to be here for a defined period of time when we really don't know. There's so many drivers to what is going to be happening. And that's kind of, I think, been our topic lately is just is just kind of having the right conversations with people and, and, and having a realistic uh, you know, realistic expectations on what to, what to do with them. Well, this is Nick, but one of the things that, you know, we have to bear in mind, I think, is if you look at a lot of research on strength and, and rehab is we can absolutely make a tissue stronger, but we don't necessarily change the recruitment pattern. Right. And so you know, back to the motor control is, is really how do we actually change the, the motor cortex and how long does that take? And uh, I think there's there's at least a, one or two papers out there with some some ideas on that. Uh, and and then I guess the question is, what's the outcome marker, right? Is it a change in pain? Is it and how do we determine that somebody is is better, for lack of a better term? Right. Um, and I think that's that's part of the art and science, and it's the difficulty with um, as Adam and I were joking um, earlier today about. <clears throat> caring more about the patient's health than they do. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think we assume we can have more influence with them than we really can relative to what they do outside of our office. And uh, so I think the real challenge is, I think, as, as Adam said, we can open up these neurologic opportunities or neurologic windows, but how do we cement those? And, and if patients aren't doing some sort of maintenance regularly, I think it's a real challenge. And then I think we unfairly put too much burden on ourselves for not creating the change. Sure. Mm-hmm. And when the reality is, uh, how could you cement something in 30 minutes, right? Or an hour or whatever that time is. Right. So I know necessarily discuss motor control, but I think it's, it's a great question. And, and, uh, and, and uh, Chris Powers, PhD out of USC, did publish something on cortical motor function with glute max recently. And he had people doing hour-long isometrics, but he showed a, a profound change in six days. So if you can get your patients to do an hour of an isometric a day, maybe you could change sure. it faster than than four weeks. But again, who knows, right? I also, I also think about just like how complicated pain is. And you know, if we think about some of the pain science and people that are in chronic pain for long periods of time, that they lose representation in their somatosensory cortex to that specific region. Uh, Loramir Mosley and David Butler out of the NOI group 
in Australia call it smudging, which I really like. And, you know, they lose representation. And so, you know, how long is it going to take? I really have no idea. And then I start thinking about, you know, behavior change and, and all these other pieces that, that need to go in. In my experience, people that come into me in pain tend to have, tend to be running very sympathetic dominance in terms of like fight or flight and also tend to be, have experience anxiety around their pain and typically have a behavior change or two that need to occur for the, for it to stick, so to speak, as you just said. And so for me, a lot of, especially more and more in the beginning is like educating people on that, you know, chilling out, resting and digesting and like educating them on, on being able to relax and stimulate parasympathetic response because then it becomes easier to create these changes in the somatosensory cortex. If you're running sympathetic, you're not gonna learn anything new. That's what a lot of research shows. And so really? for me, people that are in pain, you know, I think that's, the, the, for me, it's a key of breathing. And I know, like, one of the things that I say to my patients that I heard is that, you know, great analogy is that respiration is subconscious. We take 20,000, take oxygen in and out of our body 20,000 times a day without thinking about it. But breathing is conscious. And so how many people really breathe in their day? And so for me, if people are in pain and they, you know, are fixating on it or stretching an area or rubbing on an area repeatedly over and over and over, you know, I kind of say to them, how long have you been stretching it? How long have you been rubbing it? And has it made a difference? And it never really does most times. Right. And so that's when I think the recognizing, hey, you know, this is an opportunity for behavior change. Instead of stretching, rubbing, whatever you're fixating on it, take a breath, recognize it. Hey, I'm in pain right now. Take a deep breath with that. Right there and recognizing, I think one of the first things I do is educate on that process of sympathetic versus parasympathetic. If you fixate on it or rub on it and get stressed on it and your self-talk goes there, well, then cortisol is released and that stimulates sympathetic dominance and all the pieces that go along with that, tightened tissue, heart, faster heart rate, breathing more into your chest, harder to learn new activities. So for me, it really becomes about educating the patient, especially initially on ways to stimulate parasympathetic response. And so that for me is naming it to tame it. Hey, I feel in pain right now. I hurt. I whatever. Now take a deep breath. Now you have set up a feedback loop to allow a behavior change to occur whatever it might be, what maybe you're going to stretch, maybe it's going to stretch or rub on the opposite side of the tissue, who knows what it's going to be. But for me, it becomes about behavior change uh, and, and ways to stimulate parasympathetic sympathetic dominance as much as possible, especially early on. You know, I think that that goes, and I, don't, I know that doesn't necessarily answer your question about motor control, um, but... Oh, I think it does. Yeah. You, hit, you hit on a lot of things. You know, we, it just reminds me of a video I just watched... Uh, you know, I was at PPS a couple months ago and there was a conference, there was a seminar on the positive emotional state and there's a YouTube video that's out there called Above the Line. And and uh, it's just a really powerful, and it does specifically talk about how you don't solidify long-term memories. You can't perform tasks when you're in a, when you're in a negative emotional state because of cortisol and adrenaline and all those things that are rushing through your body. Um, and, right. and, and that's the, the frustrating part is that our medical world right now it has it that we you know have this pre this time this this condition is going to take this time and and it, and it seems ridiculous you know the more that you know the more you know and and for the listeners out there obviously you can tell these guys are pretty deep thinkers and if there's one thing i can say about this book that i know that you're going to get some really really deep you know well thought out uh topics that if you want to explore human movement better this is going to definitely be the book for you there's no doubt about it um, I love analogies and I can think of an analogy that, that Gary Gray uses and he talks about tractor wells as far as motor patterns. You know, how long is it going to take? Well, how deep is your tractor well? And if you create, if that tractor is going through that pathway and it's digging a deep well in the ground, um, it's going to be tough to get that tractor out of the well 
out of its wells. But also we know that, um, you know, just a couple, you know, a couple uh, uh, attempts down the new path isn't enough. We have to practice and practice and practice to make that new pathway and hopefully more than one pathway open for that person to move. And that just comes to my mind as, as Gary's talk about the tractor wells. Yeah, and I had a quote, you know, as you, one of the things I want to think about, and one of the things that's ironic about the body in AFS and getting back to what Gary says is, uh, you know, integrated integration there's a spectrum from integrated integration to isolated isolation you can have isolated isolation isolated integration integrated isolation integrated integration and right. understanding where we are on that spectrum i think is important just like you know uh you don't know you don't know you know you don't know you don't know you know and you know you know and so when people are coming to me and i'm pointing out these behavior changes or whatever needs to occur the first thing that's happening is i'm pointing out to them that they don't know they don't know and that's sort of how I kind of giggle about it. I give them that spiel and they sort of giggle and that's great because giggling stimulates parasympathetic response. But I said, when you get, you know, what I say to them, hey, when you're trying to do whatever it is I'm trying to make them do, that's conscious, right? This is a con bringing your awareness to it because you weren't aware of it. And, you know, Gary always talks about it should be subconscious. Well, yeah, it should be. But if it's not doing it the way you want it to do it, you need to bring awareness to that to ultimately be able to ingrain it the way you want. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's that's the important part. Hey, I, you just found out you didn't know you didn't know. Now you know you don't know, and we've set up a way to make those changes so ultimately you can know you know. And I like to talk to about that with my patients, again, because it, I think it brings awareness to them, and so they're not getting frustrated. And so I say to them, hey, when you're going to try to do it, wiggle your toes or whatever you're going to try to do, take a breath in this spot, or you're going to stretch and you know, and you're having trouble with it, don't get frustrated because think about that sympathetic dominant process that occurs. Giggle, walk away, ask your friends if they can do it, they won't be able to. And eventually there's that aha moment where then it can start to be ingrained a little bit more. And there's where the behavior change, I believe, starts to occur. Adam, would it be fair to say then on, when a patient comes into you on their first visit, the first thing you're thinking is, for one, trying to trying to allow them to be comfortable and, and as low stress as possible. And, and you're really trying to create that environment where they are not stressed out to be in physical therapy. That's your initial focus. Secondary is finding movement dysfunction and trying to go after the physical side. Well, I would say the first thing, one of the first things that I try to think about is what's, what's driving them here? Where's the driver? Is it an emotional driver? Is it a behavioral driver? Is it a physical driver? Is it a biological driver? Right? There's all these different things that can drive pain or drive an, a movement asymmetry. So for me, it's really about trying to, you know, obviously, yeah, getting them comfortable and, and those type of things, but understanding where their driver is coming. I, I'm Lenny Parasino, who I know you've had on the, the show, uh, you know, really ingrained in me. The individual essentials is what I believe he referred to them as. And I teach this with my patients. It's like there are four individual essentials that no matter how individual we all are, we all have these four things in common. Movement. I would say that that's where our collective expertise lies for the, you know, in our community, the movement people. Uh, rest and recovery. How well do you rest and recover from your movement bouts or whatever you're going to do? Nourishment. How well do you, you know, are you taking in the right food? I heard Paul Check once say, would you want your body to make an eyeball of that? And then the fourth is behavior. And so those four questions become really important to me or, or when I think about what's – and if there's dysfunction in the body, at least one of those four things is going to be out of whack. One of the questions that I like to ask my patients, a couple of them, is one is how are you today, which I think is a really interesting question. And then the second one is what can I do for you today or what do you need from me today? And that how are you today? Oh, I'm so stressed. 
been sitting at my work, you know, I've been at work since 7 a.m. and I've, it's 2.30 in the afternoon and they haven't gotten up and taken any breaks. What did you eat today? I had a bagel and three cups of coffee and that's all they've eaten. They haven't gotten up. You know, how well did you sleep? I slept so terrible last night. So when this, when that's the case, then they're in pain. And these are the people that I've seen for a couple of times that don't necessarily get better when we're improving their movement. I, I have a slide. I show them that. You, you just said you, you're not sleeping well. You're not eating well. You're stressed out. You're not recovering. You tell me what's out of balance right here. And people know it. And so I think that's an important question. And then the second question that I want, I think is important is like, how can I help you or what do you need from me today? Because again, wants and needs are different and I can give you everything that you need, such as increasing your hip extension to get you more shoulder flexion when your shoulders impinging. But if I only give you what you need and want, not what you want, you're not going to be satisfied. Just like if I only rub on your shoulder the way you want me to and I don't give you what you need, which is for me to get you more motion in your hip, you also are going to be unsatisfied. So for me, those two questions become really important and being able to set up the, the, the process that I want for them to be able to get better. Because I think on a, that second question, what can I do for you is also really interesting because it's a great way to identify those that are going to assume responsibility for their getting better and those that are going to put it onto the clinician to make them better. And what I mean by that is I'll say, what can I do for you? And some people will say, I want to, I want to, I want you to work on me a little bit. I want to review what we did. And then I want to go exercise. Great. Let's go do this, this, and this. Off we go. Let's go. And other people say, what do you need from me? And they kind of get very standoffish. Well, you tell me what I need. You're the professional here. I come in your and I said, no, no, no. I'm, and I explain that wants and needs. Those people that sort of get standoffish at me are the ones that are going to put it on me to get them better a lot of times. And that's where my education about behavior change and those type of things becomes even more important. Wow. That's, yeah, there's a, there's a sense of vulnerability that as a movement professional that we need to have in order to even ask that question because we could easily have the the kind of the expert mindset where we're going to give them what we think they need, not necessarily, like you said, what they need from us or what they want from us. So that's a, that I want to, I would, I'm going to start integrating that right away into my practice. And, you know, just for this fact, you know, think about how many people, you know, passively discharge, you know, potentially because they didn't feel that their needs were met or that their wants were met. And that could put a stop to that with that simple question. I think more and more in my career, I think there's a, a lot of times if there's nothing that I can do for that person that's standing in front of me physically, if they're in acute pain or whatnot, but if I can uplift them emotionally or some of these other ways, behaviorally, that's going to create the feed forward response that we need for when they come in on that second and third visit to be able to start to make the changes. Can you tell I, the sympathetic dominant guy here? <laughs> I am too. I, I can tell he talks the same way I do. He's got a lot in his mind. You know, I think he takes it. Is those 20,000 unconscious respirations he's taken. So. Right. <laughs> right. I, you know, my favorite thing about doing this podcast is I learn stuff every time we have someone on. And I, this has been awesome. This is, I would say this is really on the same level as when Lenny was on. You guys are just spitting all kinds of knowledge bombs and it's awesome to hear. Boom. Boom. <laughs> well, it's fun to be here, man. Because here's the fun part. Like Nick and I would be sitting on the couch looking at each other, having this probably same conversation anyway of exactly. some sort. So, you know, I, I flew out here yesterday. I don't get a lot of time to learn with or hang out with him. So I had a quick break in my schedule. So came out last night and we're going to hang out today and just talk shop a little bit. And so it's fun to be able to do it with you guys too. Thank you. You know, I think this is important to just point out to everybody listening is that, you know, the magic happens outside of work. I mean, you're working with patients and, you know, if you're not if you're not engaging your brain outside of work and you're not thinking about these, I mean, there's so much to think about this. This is such a complex topic. Movement is so complex. I had a, I had a cardiovascular surgeon as a patient say, God, 
your job must be way harder than mine because I just have to worry about the arteries and the veins. And he's a surgeon and he's like, you have to worry about the neuromusculoskeletal system. He's like, that's insane. You know, I mean, it, so the magic happens outside of work. It happens in our free time. And I think the people that are really, really, you know, outstanding and dedicated are the ones that are doing exactly what you guys are doing, which is you're hanging out and you're talking about this stuff. My wife always gives me a hard time. Yeah, when are you ever going to, when are you ever stop working? You know what? Like, I'm so into this stuff that I, I think about this stuff in my sleep, not just when I'm hanging out with her, you know? No, I totally agree. And uh, kind of Nick and I were joking. Like, I, I've learned more sitting on his couch half drunk than I've learned in any class I've ever taken. So, right? Uh, it's true. And that's the importance of, like, finding, you know, friends that are interested in the same things and mentors that you can learn with and from. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that Nick gets a couple ideas from me. but I think, Absolutely. I think it's... Uh, and I feel I feel very fortunate to have friends and mentors in my life that have kind of shown me the way a little bit. You know what's even cooler is that we haven't even met you guys, and the fact that we have the we are in the community of AFS, you know, applied functional science. Just that that right there alone makes me feel like I already know you guys. You know, and that that's just a I can tell we have a lot of you know we have a lot of commonalities for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's that's the brilliance of. Uh, the great incident. Absolutely. You know, we, we, one of the great that we're able to do together these people. However, I, I must say for those AFS listeners out there, yeah, that I, I always encourage people to take courses that go completely opposite I agree, their 100%. thought process because I think AFS is quick to poo poo a lot of stuff without actually going and giving it some real thought and consideration. And, um, and, and because the community supports the community, so it's easy to create that cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. So, in spite of it being sort of the uh, litmus test with which we do base a lot of our thought process on, I think it's important to continue to say, hmm, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Let me go learn about that because you might be surprised that it it's actually has a very similar thought process or message. So it's always just what I encourage a lot. Find AFS people tend to only gravitate towards AFS content. Sure. Well, I find that that's I, – I agree and I also think that that's – go on in a lot of different absolutely not just absolutely. and i always say you know kind of drink a lot of kool-aid drinking one kool-aid you might have rum in it so you might be drunk on it you know <laughs> right but <laughs> you can steal it uh but you know I, and i agree and and i think that uh i've learned the most and here's the, my realization of going and taking all these courses that are not necessarily afs is that a it strengthened my appreciation and knowledge of afs and what it really made me realize that AFS can be a modality, but it can also be a lens in which you look through everything else and it enhances. It's not replacing anything else. It's just going to enhance everything that you're already doing because everything that you're doing that's non-AFS related is, is working for you to a certain extent, right? It's just going to, you know, as Gary says, it allows you to tweak. You get a PhD in tweakology. You just have a different understanding of ways to enhance all these other modalities that are so powerful on their own. You know, and that's what, that's what makes this book so awesome, too, is that's exactly what I felt when I was reading it. It's like through a lens of AFS, but for the listeners out there that have no idea about AFS, you don't, even, you don't need to have that knowledge to read this book. Um, it, like Adam just said, it's through the lens of that, but in the book, it's very uh, an eclectic approach. He's talking about all a bunch of different people who have done amazing things and how he dives into reading from, you know, you know several different people. And then uh, another thing I like that you do on top of the eclectic approach is offering kind of a key concept within the, each chapter where it's a bolded section where it kind of ties together the thoughts that, that you just wrote down. And then at the end of the chapter, there's even exercise ideas of what you just talked about. 
Um, so for the listeners out there who don't know, you know, what the hell we're talking about when we talk about calcaneal eversion leading to, you know, glute max load, you don't need to. It's a very well-rounded book. It ties things together well, and I think that's the beauty of it. I appreciate it. And, you know, as I, one of the reasons it started is I realized I was looking for something I was looking for information on real and relative motion in literature, and I really had a hard time finding it. And I had a conversation with Gary Gray and these people, and they said, no, there's really not anything out there. The one thing that I was able to find that talked about real and relative motion, I mentioned it in the book, is from, in my book, is from uh, uh, the book Visceral Manipulation by Jean-Pierre Barral. Uh, and in the book Visceral Manipulation, right in the beginning, he talks about during a forward flexion, that I believe it's the hepatic liver slides forward faster than the tissue below it to create this you know, flexion. I, and that was the only thing that I could find on, on real and relative motion. And so talking to Gary, I was fortunate to get his permission to talk about some of his work. And uh, so it does. And, and then it talks about you know, other people's work as well. It truly is meant to be sort of uh, a stepping stone to go and learn from all the people that I've been fortunate to learn from. And as you said, at the end of each chapter, there's an additional readings list of things that and websites and articles and books and things and topic. And so there's a, a bunch of resources in there. And again, it's truly meant to be for the person that has some knowledge on some of the information to be able to tie it. And then people that haven't been introduced to any of it uh, to have a little bit of an introduction to then go learn more. It really is. And I say it again in the book is it's not the end all be all by any means. And this is a representation of my work based on my understanding at this point in my life. And I'm sure that that'll change in a year and I'll have to tweak the book a little bit. So It looks like it's going to be a phenomenal read and uh, we want to encourage all of our listeners out there to go ahead and grab a copy. How can they get a copy of your book? Do you have it on Amazon or you, is it on your website? Yeah, both. Uh, you can get it on my website as biomechanicaldetective.com. Love it. And on you can buy uh, the book is also on Amazon. It's an e. It's on Kindle and also a paperback version. So you can access all that from my website, uh, or you can access it from Amazon. And the book is called Real Movement: Perspective on Integrated Motion and Motor Control. You can find it there. And then uh, on the website, on my website, there's also a. I teach a two-day course. I want to call the course How Adam Teaches, but nobody knows who Adam is. So, uh, but it's basically just it. The, again, the book was meant as an adjunct to the course. And so I took the 16 hour course that I had and pared it down. It's a three and a half hour video. So on my website, you can buy the book and the video, or you can get them both uh, for a special rate. Nice. We might have to get you up here in Traverse City and teach a two day course. That'd be awesome. Do it, man. Love it. That'd be great. You're not that far away, right? It's all relative, isn't it? Chicago land, <laughs> Chicago land. Yeah, I get that. I'm in Chicago. Yeah. It's not that far six, away. I'd be, I'd I think it's a six, six hour drive. We could handle that. Um, we have an airport that. too. We have an airport too. Well, we really appreciate having you guys on. You guys are, you've been awesome guests and it's been fun. I've learned, I've learned a bunch just in the last 40 minutes talking to you guys. You have something that like always, we like to give away something to our listeners and you guys put together a little something just to give them kind of a sneak peek, uh, you know, of some of the highlights of your book. Talk about that real quick. Yeah. It's just sort of like a highlight, uh, a quick PDF version of like a report. We're going to call it, even though I hate that word, but, sure. uh, just some of the highlights of the book and some of the philosophies that we I've found really useful for me. So that'll be on my website. So if you guys want a sneak peek at that, that, that might be a little way to kind of figure out whether or not you're going to like the book. Um, I'd encourage you to go to our show notes for this episode and just uh, hit the box. So there's going to be a little image in the in the show notes. You can just download the, the freebie. And otherwise, if you want to just bypass that, go right ahead and buy his book. It sounds like it's going to be a, an awesome I, read. Yeah. You know, we get to I encourage you. And I, you can also on Amazon, you can read like the, you can, I don't know, you get like 20 pages that you can read to check it out. 
oh, check it. out the book. Awesome. I love it. That. That's excellent. And then also, like, you know, Nick, we didn't get a chance. Uh, Nick has uh, Spark Motion, which is the great 3D motion capture software that I use with my patients. It's really it's fantastic. You're allowed, you can do uh, video before and after, you know, work. You're able to add, lay grids down and goniometers and has voice speak over. Uh, uh, voice recorded video. So, uh, Nick, if you want to tell a little bit about that, how about this? Uh, and, and, and again, I, I mentioned it earlier, but maybe if we could do a call in the future, that would be great. Well, that's the thing. How about we do this? Because that that's like another conversation, and I, you know, I think we we can actually use a lot of examples we've done with that app here. Would you be willing? This is our your formal invite. Would you be willing willing to be on the show in the future? Absolutely honored to. It'd be great. But I'm gonna have to come back. You're gonna have to call me in on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what we'll do after the show here, we'll send you an invite. Uh, we'll email you. We'll get the date set up here, and we'll hopefully great. have you on relatively soon. And that would be an awesome episode. I think would be of high value. So really appreciate you guys being on today. And is there anything else we forgot? Well, thanks for having us. That's a lot of fun. Awesome, guys. Will you enjoy your time together? And, um, you know, enjoy Denver. And, and uh, again, thanks uh, for, ha- for, for being on the show. And, and it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Great day. Yeah.